Advent is maybe something you didn't grow up with. I know a lot of people did not, um, and that may be unfamiliar to you. Why are we doing this? Is this just like pre-Christmas party? What's, what's the deal? Um, and what we confess is that together we live according to an alternative schedule. We, our time is not broken up and organized simply the way the world organizes its time, but we instead, our lives are organized by the story of the gospel. And during the season of Advent, it's a time of corporate spiritual formation where whether you wanted to or not, we're going to be meditating on these themes within the scriptures of waiting on what God is going to do in the world through Christ. What this is not is pretending like Jesus has not come. This is not a, a giant game of pretend where we're saying, man, we hope that Jesus will be born soon. No, Jesus was born uh, 2,000 years ago. We're not going to pretend otherwise. We're going to look at and, and meditate on these themes of what happens when Christ comes. Not only in his first advent, his first coming, which we celebrate his birthday on Christmas Day and the days following, but in his second advent, his second coming. So you will hear readings over the next several weeks that you maybe don't expect as you're leading up to Christmas. Maybe you're anticipating a lot of passages about babies being born and stuff like that. You'll hear this week. Uh, we will not be, just be meditating on those passages. Uh, we'll be hearing a lot of things like, the sun being darkened and judgment coming and all these things. And the question we ask ourselves is, are we ready for Jesus to come? Are we ready, not just for the moment of his, uh, his birth, but are we ready for the moment of his return in power? That's what the themes of Advent are all about. If that's new to you, welcome to the party the journey. Um, this is really setting up a larger partying season of partying during the season of Christmas, which is 12 days of, of feasting, and you should fully take advantage of that. All right. I'm going to be reading uh, during these four weeks of Advent. Uh, I'll be using the lectionary texts. So that means you're going to hear multiple texts every Sunday. Uh, you'll, we always have a call to worship from the Psalms. That's going to continue generally. We may use other songs. But then we'll also read an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, and a Gospel passage. So you're going to hear all three of these things. In some weeks, I will just be meditating on one of these scriptures. And others will be interweaving all three of them. And you'll get to find out what that looks like. So first, we'll be in Jeremiah 33 verse 14 through 16, and you'll hear this again later as we light our Advent candle. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Our next passage, our New Testament reading, is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, starting at the ninth verse. 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And finally, a reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day comes upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though these words come from the pen of three different authors, you stand behind the authors and these words are yours. They carry your own weight and power and authority. God, we pray that your spirit would help us, that our ear would be inclined, that we would listen, that we would respond, that we would obey, that we would love you. To the praise of Jesus, amen. This, uh, this message here that comes in, in three parts is I think is especially helpful for us as we enter into a time where the world is operating by their calendar and we are trying to live into ours. And here in the scriptures is this sort of uh, whole vision of, of a story that is yet to be fulfilled. Jeremiah is a prophet in Israel that is prophesying in the days of Jerusalem's fall. This is, this is the great culmination of Israel's failure to obey God. They have lived in Judah and Israel and for centuries have failed to respond to God's command to remember and to obey. For centuries they have fallen short. And finally, the culmination of the consequences is coming upon them. And Jeremiah is this weeping prophet who is going to oversee the destruction of Jerusalem and seemingly the desolation of all their hope. Most of the book of Jeremiah is quite grim. 
it's dark. Because the announcement is that God is coming finally to judge his people. But there's this little window of hope and comfort in Jeremiah from chapter 31 to 33. And we're at the end of this little window of comfort that comes. When God says there is something on the other side of what is immediately on the horizon. And one of the real problems in Israel is that Jeremiah says the great shepherds of Israel have failed in their task. God points the finger at them and gives them a higher degree of responsibility. He says that they have caused God's own flock to be scattered. And God will not allow this to stand. Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 23, he's alluded to this coming figure, this branch from David's line. The the image kind of being that also spoken in Isaiah that that David's kingship line is is kind of been cut to the ground and yet unexpectedly from this burned out stump, a branch of renewed life and hope will spring out. And Jeremiah here is telling the people that God will send this branch from David's line to be the kind of shepherd, the kind of king that Israel had so desperately needed. And he will establish the people in peace. And the Lord will be the righteousness of the people who could not themselves be righteous. So it's a forward look beyond the invasion of of Babylon. And in our gospel passage is this Luke's version of this discourse that Jesus gives. That you can read similar passages in in Matthew and, and Mark. And Luke has Jesus telling us these things in Jerusalem in the context of the, the, the nearness of the cross. And he's standing in Jerusalem, this Jerusalem that is centuries past exile, that has finally come home, that the temple has finally been rebuilt. And just chapters before this, Jesus stands looking out at this kind of slowly quasi-recovering Jerusalem, and he's just weeping. And he says how he's longed to gather his people Israel. And yet they have so pushed against him and rebelled against him that what he sees is destruction coming. So following Babylon is this other coming destruction. And Jesus begins speaking in this words that are, we can only describe as apocalyptic. In this speech that he gives, it's, it's people go back and forth. What really is Jesus talking about here? And without getting into the weeds um, of what it means, people say, is this the end of the world or is this the end of Jerusalem? And for a number of reasons, I tend to think Jesus is actually talking mostly about the end of Jerusalem because of the way that he's talking about the people that are right before him and because of what we have seen in the book of Acts. A lot of the things that Jesus prophesies and describes about his his friends, his followers getting arrested and being persecuted and martyred, Luke goes on to tell in the book of Acts. And what Jesus says is that there's a description of this cataclysmic moment when everything will fall, the nations will come to mock and to roar at God's inability, seemingly, to do what he said he would do. But he says there, there will be the day when the Son of Man, in that moment, when everything seems to be crumbling to pieces, the Son of Man is actually ascending in power on the clouds. 
And so his people should take heart. When they see Jerusalem fall, and it seems like the story of God has finally crumbled to pieces, God has abandoned Jerusalem, God has abandoned his people. That is the precise moment, Jesus says, when they should know the kingdom of God is near. It's actually the expansion of God's power to all the earth. In these passages, we have a kind of warning, a way, and and a command towards. And the first warning away is what we see in Luke chapter 21, where Jesus warns his disciples that calamity is going to befall them, that destruction, martyrdom, persecution is on its way. And what he warns them is you should not be fooled. You will stand before the Son of Man. This Old Testament figure that Jesus calls himself by, this person who is given the kingly authority to rule over all the nations. And Jesus says, you will be evaluated. Now remember, he's not talking to others over there. He's talking to his own disciples. And he says, don't be so foolish to think that you can be caught up in the calamity and the winds of this world. And to think that you yourselves will not be evaluated. But what he says is you should, of all people, know what is coming. And see these things for the signs that they are so that you will be counted as righteous. He says, stay away from this kind of life. And we can look at the words that he uses to describe what he warns them from. He says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighted down with dissipation, drunkenness, and cares of this life. Dissipation, if, if you don't know what that word is, because we just generally don't use that word. Dissipation is a life that is concerned chiefly with your own pleasure. Whatever kind of pleasure you can think of. If you give yourself over to a life of your own pleasure, that's dissipation. It is all of these things are overconsumption, overfocus on good things often in this world that have become ultimate things for you. So most of us understand and know what drunkenness is. And drunkenness here and in the rest of the scriptures, something that is forbidden to Christians, is a symbol of the kind of sin that Jesus is warning his disciples Against, which is especially relevant in Thanksgiving and Christmas time. When we take good things and we just say, more, just more. And look, I'm not pointing a finger at you. All the fingers are pointing straight back at me. My belt is one notch looser than it was a week ago. Because I get in the context of the feasting of this world, and what I just keep telling myself is, that was good, some is good, more is better. And what I can have here, if I just increase it, then I will just increase my pleasure. And that's exactly how drunkenness happens, right? There's nothing bad in scripture about drinking wine, about drinking beer, but there is something bad about keep going back and refilling your cup. Because God has given a gift in some portion and we've decided, well, I will decide that the the portion of the gift should be so on and so forth. And those kinds of appetites are exactly what the world is teaching us right now 
I mean, all the time, certainly. But absolutely right now, we are bombarded, not with just alcohol advertisements, but advertisements for everything. So that any good thing that you can imagine, the world is going to push you to a degree of drunkenness on those things. If you like movies, watch more of them. If you like to be entertained otherwise, be entertained more. If you like new clothes, you need more of them. Very rarely, if ever, do you hear a message from the world that says you should control your desires and your appetites. Usually when you hear that message, it's about the new year and people trying to sell gym memberships. Gyms are great, okay? But those are the only kind of times you hear people say, like, maybe you should pull back a little bit. Otherwise, it's just have more. And that's been true in Jesus' day and it's been true in our day. And you and I are being warned by Jesus that you should not be so foolish to think that that kind of ethos that the world pushes has no influence and no effect on you. Of course it does. It doesn't allow you to enjoy those things as gifts, but to instead submit to them as masters. And what Jesus is saying is, you are to be mastered by one. It is this one, the Son of Man. That's why an ordinary part of Christian life and spirituality for 2,000 years has been regular fasting. Not because fasting makes you holy or righteous or puts more points in your ledger, but as a regular discipline to your body that you are designed not to just to say yes to anything and everyone, but to receive and to hear the yes from God. So be careful, Jesus says. You will be evaluated. And you should not live your life that leads you in that moment to stand before the Son of Man and to truthfully say to him and to confess, it is actually myself, my own belly, that has mastered my life. So the question is, for us, as it was for these disciples who were about to enter into the calamity of the world, where in your life are you experiencing this kind of drunkenness and dissipation and the cares of this world? Where have you given yourself over to the appetites of the moment and failed to keep your eyes on the one who in the midst of calamity is indeed and in fact reigning in power? Now Jesus warns away from something and in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he encourages movement in another direction, towards something. And I don't know if you heard it. It took me several readings to pay attention to what he was saying. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He's writing a letter, so he's praying that God would 
have him brought back to the peace people, the Thessalonians. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Did you hear that? The thing that Paul prays for the Thessalonians so that they would meet rooted and, and, and growing up in holiness and blamelessness is that they would increase in love for one another and for all. Isn't that interesting that he would say it that way? If the end goal is holiness and blamelessness, I'm not sure that our instinct, our solution, our roadmap to that destination is matching up often with Paul's here. He says that he prays for the Thessalonian people that they would be abounding in love for one another and all. And that somehow that results in holiness and blamelessness before our God and Father. You were meant to live a life following Jesus that is rooted in Christian community. You were made to be in relationship amidst the calamity of this world with people who are also in a life of endurance and sanctification, growth and holiness. You were made not to live by yourself. And this thing that we are doing, not just here on Sunday, but in every day of our life, is not incidental. It is not an accessory. It is not an option. You were not meant to follow Jesus with you in a room and a Bible. You in a room with a Bible is a wonderful thing. It's an important spiritual practice. And it is not even close to the sum total of the Christian life. You and I were meant to be a part of a people. And the priorities of our lives are meant to reflect that. That's why if, if being a part of a church is just something that happens to hit your list of things that you kind of do throughout the year to varying degrees of your guilt or not guilt or whatever it might be, that's not the life that God intended for you in his church. That in fact, loving his people and abounding in love for all is an important instrumental way in which he brings you to a place of holiness. And if you are in close relationship with other people, with other Christians, you have probably experienced that. Because loving other people in the church will demand this kind of growth and holiness from you. Especially if you don't sort of fence off your love for people who are just like you, but if you sort of let that love run free so that you have to love people in the church who are not like you, you'll probably find yourself not being allowed to live a life dictated by your appetites. There are people 
in this room who differ from you in personality, in interest, in stage of life, in theology, in politics. And everybody in this room is going to find some way to step on your toes at best. If not outright sin against you and drive you to tears or fury or both. This is my advertisement for being a member of a church. Because when you get in the heat of those kinds of relationships, you are forged in the heat of God's own love. When you are, when you are forced to love people who drive you crazy, you are forced to reckon with the extensive generosity that God demonstrates to you. If you allow yourself the burden, the terrible burden of being deeply knit into Christian community, you will see that all those people around you that drive you crazy are constantly, if you're listening, pointing you towards the reality that God has been unbelievably generous to you. And so when Jesus teaches you to pray, forgive us our sins, the way that we forgive those who sin against us, you are being pulled into deeper and wider understandings of what that actually means. Paul pushes us towards that kind of Christian life together because it shapes us and changes us. Pushes against our appetites and desires. This is something that I think about with my own kids all the time. And I'm, I am too scared to ask them about plenty of times. They are the along with my wife, the closest observers of my life. And I would like to know that if they could take away my words and only evaluate my actions, what they decide that my priorities are. So, I say that I love this church. Do they see me loving this church? I say that I love the people in this church. I say that I love the people in my missional community. But if they could sort of mute my words and evaluate all of my actions, how important would this place and these people be in their eyes? Is the weight of that loving pushing and forming me in this direction? And my prayer for myself and for you is this Paul's prayer. That you would abound in love for each other and for all. That that pushes you towards holiness and blamelessness as you and I look to the day when we stand before Jesus. And what Jeremiah has prophesied all the way centuries before is that he 
God will send a king who will rule his kingdom in peace and righteousness. And what we, in the season of Advent, confess together is that day has kind of come, but it also has not. And we are longing for the day when that peace and that happiness will be before our eyes. I want to I read something that I tried to make a copy of this so I didn't have to look like such a nerd, but I couldn't get it to scan. This is from John Calvin's commentary on the book of Jeremiah. Had he been speaking of some earthly or temporal government, the salvation also might have been temporal or earthly. But as the spiritual and celestial kingdom of Christ is the object of the promise, the salvation mentioned must reach to the very heavens. Hence, its limits are far wider than the whole world. In short, the salvation of which Jeremiah now prophesies is not to be confined to the boundaries of a fading life, nor is it to be sought in this world where it has no standing. But if we wish to know what it is, we must learn to raise our thoughts upwards and above the world and everything that exists here. It is an eternal salvation. In the meantime, Christ gives us some foretaste of this salvation in this life. According to what is said, godliness has the promises of the present as well as of the future life in 1 Timothy. But as this promise ought to be applied to the kingdom of Christ, there is no doubt, but it is perpetual and ought to raise up our thoughts to heaven itself. We experience at times in this community little foretastes of the rule of this shepherd king. But ultimately, our own failures to control our appetites in our private and individual lives and the sin that we encounter in the church is a very present reminder that our eyes are directed to Jesus. That we are living in the tension of a time between God has won his final victory, but yet not fully demonstrated its consequences. We are drawn into a life together where we are shaped and formed, sinning and sinned against. God slowly shaping and forming us in holiness and righteousness. But in this season of Advent, we also confess together that we long for the day when the branch, the shepherd king, will rule and reign visibly in power and in peace. So if you are caught in the pain of the in-between world, frustrated by the power of your own appetites, disheartened at the fractured Christian community around you. The promise of God is not broken or in question. It is, in fact, still given to you, still in place, and still yet coming. 
If your heart is growing heavy and weary with yourself and with others, the invitation this Advent Sunday is to come and see Jesus. Jesus' commitment to you and to his people is that there, was, there is coming a day when he will put his name on your forehead and say, the Lord is our righteousness. There is coming a day when the, 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 the journey, the transition, the growth, the process is over and all of what lies ahead of us is rest. And you and I were meant to set our minds on Christ, to long for the day of his coming, and to plead that we might be a faithful people, reflecting his image to the world and to one another, that love of God would abound in us and sustain us until he comes. If your hope is anywhere else, come have your hope dashed this Sunday. If you have invested your life, your energy, your money, your thoughts, your energies, and your own appetites, have those gods dashed to pieces this Sunday. And have the love of God and love for his people be given to you in overabundance again and again that you might stand before him in holiness and blamelessness with his own love as the badge that marks you for his people forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that though calamity comes, you are faithful. Though we hear the news of evaluation of our life being weighed up. And we can look to ourselves and look to our own case and look to how well we feel that we have balanced the ledgers. And what we see, God, is that it is impossible for us. Father, I pray for, for all those who have given so much of their life to pursuing their own pleasures and appetites, good things, great things, wonderful things that have become ultimate things, the things that govern them and dictate to them how their life should be shaped. And Father, I pray that you would fill them with a spirit of repentance that comes not from shame or condemnation, but from the one master, the one Lord Jesus Christ who would come to set them free. And Father, I pray for those who have been either deeply connected or loosely connected to Christian community and bear the scars from it. Father, I pray that you would come and bind up their wounds and that you would cause love to abound in them to one another and to all. So that it would be a supernatural experience of your own love for your people that draws them again to life and embeddedness in the community. Father, we want to be a people who are not satisfied, not solely fixed on the things of this world, but instead have our eyes fixed on Jesus. We pray that this, the words of that song would be true in our hearts, that we would turn our eyes 
upon Jesus. And everything else will become strangely dimmed in the light of your glory and grace. Help us to see rightly, to value what is most valuable, and to arrange and organize our lives in pursuit of you with our brothers and sisters, that we might be changed and formed and the world may be called to love you, its true king. We love you, King Jesus. And we're so grateful for your love towards us and for us. Help us to continue to bloom and to blossom under your good shepherding care. We love you, King Jesus. Amen.